All right. You know, where, where have we been? We've been in the book of Matthew. We've been focusing uh, on the last week of the life of Christ, and we're going to be using Matthew's account as, you know, the principal place of focus. Now, having said that, the, the value of the other three books of the, uh, of the Bible that talk about the life of Christ, the, the other three Gospels, Mark and Luke and John, especially Luke and John in relation to Matthew, give us added dimensions. So there's such a value in interweaving them together. So even though our predominant focus is going to be on Matthew's text, we're going to be taking in different pieces that add to the larger picture of what's going on. And I think it helps us. So just kind of be aware of that. You know, remember where we left off last week. And again, this is just a quick refresher. We're all, we're all many of us um, have heard, heard and read this before. You were here in the last few weeks. But just really quickly to sort of reset where we've been. Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas. Uh, Judas has made a, a, essentially an arrangement with uh, the, the Pharisees and the, and, the, and the Sadducees, the leaders of the Sanhedrin in the, in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, it, it was an, a wonderful thing from their perspective to have one of Jesus' own uh, turn on him. It was an unexpected, unanticipated solution to a dilemma that they had. They wanted to arrest Jesus. They were afraid. He had such a following. Uh, they couldn't do it in daylight. Judas had unexpectedly come up and gave them an offer uh, to, to show them how to capture Jesus in the, in the darkness, in the cloak of darkness. He would lead them exactly to where he knew he would be. And, of course, we talked about that and how Jesus had made his way out of the streets of Jerusalem after the celebration of the Passover and the First Communion. He and his 11 disciples made their way down the streets of Jerusalem, outside the city gates, down to the valley of the Kidron, up to the Mount of Olives. You can still see these places today. The Garden of Gethsemane was there somewhere in that olive grove. Jesus left the aid at the entrance, takes with him Peter, James, and John, the other three, to a deeper place into the garden. In the garden, he says, look, I need you to be here. Watch with me. I'm going to go. He says the Bible uses the language about a stone's throw away. A little further on, I'm going to pray. And he prays, and he has this time of exchange with the Father in which really he settles the issue fine, you know, once and for all. Uh, he asks, is it possible? Is there another way? The humanly speaking, Jesus didn't want to walk into what he was about to have to deal with. It was, we talked about the significance of the cup of suffering, how it went far beyond just a physical dimension, how he's going to bear the sins of the world, the guilt, uh, separation from the Father, so many layers there. We sat with that. We talked about it, how Jesus prayed three times, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But each time he comes back and says, but nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. He had asked the disciples to stay with them, alert the three of them. Well, each time he had come back, he found them sleeping. Finally, on the third time, he says, arise, my betrayer is at hand. He had Judas, while all that was happening, was leading a contingent of men, armed soldiers from the, from the house of Caiaphas. Soldiers um, had come with clubs and swords, torches, made their way down. As Jesus is just completing his third and final time of prayer, Judas is at that point entering into the gate. Uh, as soon as he's done, Jesus turns and he can see Judas walking towards him. Judas immediately, Judas had told the men, the one that I kissed, that's the one to, to make sure you don't let him go. And so Judas leads them straight to Jesus. And then he, as he said he would in a kind of, uh, you know, perverse way, uh, morbid certainly, a sad thing, really. He says, greetings, Rabbi. And he kisses him. And that was the sign. And of course, Jesus said, friend, why have you come? And in that moment, we know that as soon as Judas kisses Jesus and greets him, that that was the, the sign that this is the one to arrest. And so immediately, these armed soldiers that had come, these guards, and in some cases, thugs, 
uh, they had their swords and clubs and they came and they were going to just lay hold of Jesus. And we were told that at that moment, Peter rose up fully awake now and he follows through on what he said he would do, assuming that they come for you. He said, I will die for you. And you know what? In that moment, he was willing to do it. He pulls out a sword and he swings that sword and he pushes, I, you get the impression he pushes aside and he starts the melee and it's about to break out because he swings and he actually hits a man. The man's name, we're told later on in John, is, is Malchus. His name is Malchus, which, and that's so rare to get a real name, which means Malchus had become the man whose ear was cut by Peter, ultimately, and, and then healed by Jesus. We talked about advanced surgery techniques. Um, the last public you know, miracle of Jesus, of his public ministry prior to the resurrection, was to heal uh, one who came to, cap, to take him, that, that one of his own had struck. And Jesus, heals. Jesus says, put the sword away. Remember we talked about this. Peter, stop it. Everybody stop right now. Put the sword away. Put the sword away. Those who, Peter, I put the sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And besides, I don't need your protection. If I, don't you understand that if I wanted to right now, this is not about me needing to be defended. You stop what you're doing. If I wanted to, I could call that Jesus makes a statement. I could call down legions from heaven right now. That's not the issue. It never has been. This is happening so the scriptures may be fulfilled. You need to let it be and let me go. And it says that in that moment, they bound Jesus. We're told in John that, that they actually tied him up, his hands and, they take, and so he's there, and, Jesus, and so Jesus utters these words. Look at, and that brings us to the text. Jesus utters these words. He says, in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, that's the large group that had come for him. Look what he says. And we're gonna walk through a decent amount of scripture here, so just kind of move with it. He says, have you come out against me as a robber, like I'm a robber, like I'm a, I'm a revolutionary leading some armed, something armed that you need to be afraid of, or a common criminal with swords? You're coming at me with swords and clubs to take me? Listen, you could have had me, you could have come anytime. You gotta take me on the cloak of darkness, huh? You could have had me with clubs and swords. I, look, you could come, why don't you come and get me anytime? I've been here all the time. I've been in the temple every day teaching. You could have me anytime you wanted to. What's the deal here? It's like he was just exposing it. It says, that, it says that at that moment, though, he says, listen, all of these things, he says, are, being, are happening here. The scriptures may be fulfilled. And then it says in that moment, now we're told that all, and that's not just one, not just two, every one of the disciples forsook him, the end of verse 56, and they fled, and they ran, and they were afraid, and they took off. And those who had laid hold of Jesus then led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so he is being roughly handled. Those hands, by the way, the hands that had never struck anyone, as far as we know, they had been hands that had healed, worked with wood, had blessed, had loved. These were, these were hands of, of life. Those hands were now tied. Uh, you think about this. One, one of the, the old writers said, omnipotence in fetters omnipotence and fetters. The all-powerful allows himself to be bound. You know, I was reminded of the great passage in Isaiah. It's in the, I put it in the parallel piece on the other side of the handout there. Just, this is written hundreds of years before the time of Christ, prophesying Messiah's coming. And look what it says. Um, and you're going to see how truly it connects with what happens. He says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me. We're going to see that and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, steadfast, and I know that I will not be ashamed. 
We're talking about Christ's willingness to allow himself to be bound and go. They take him to the house of Caiaphas. We're told something else happens. We're told, verse 58, that Peter and evidently John clearly had collected himself. John tells us he followed as well. John evidently had a friend at the house of Caiaphas, allowed them in. But we're told here that Peter, verse 58, followed at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And there's something about the way this is rendered, the, the, the poetic nature of it. And he, and he went in and he sat with the servants, look at the phrase, to see the end. So what happens, we're told, is that Peter, from a distance, just turns around and starts to make his way back, evidently, and he, he stealthily makes his way into the courtyard. Now, we can assume that this was a, a large gathering in the courtyard because you've got to understand what had happened was this was a hastily... Um, um, uh, it was a hasty, uh, meet, it was a meeting that was designed to come in haste because they had not had time to prepare for it. it the, the Sanhedrin was gathering quickly as many members as they could get. They needed to have a trial, but they didn't want to have a, a, a big trial or a public trial. It needed to be something that would allow them to have the veneer of justice at the same time they wanted to get it done as absolutely quickly as possible. And the, the, uh, they knew that even though they could sentence Jesus to death, which was their intention. Once and for all, in some cases, they justified it as saying, for the sake of the nation, this man who claims to be something he can never be must die. But they also understood that they did not have the authority under Roman rule to have him killed. They could, they could sentence him to death, but then they had to take him. And this is gonna explain why Jesus is gonna have to be led to the, to the, to the governor's uh, praetorium before Pilate, because Pilate ultimately has the authority to have Jesus put to death. They can't do it. They can only say, we want him put to death. The, the Roman governor must, must make the decision. And so there's going to be a point later on where the whole thing is going to shift over to Pilate's struggle with his own conscience and the Roman governor having to work through this. But right now, they just wanted to have it very clearly settled that Jesus was a guilty man, worthy of death, expose him as a fraud. Jesus understands what's happening. He's already seen where this thing is going. He understands it all. As Peter is in the courtyard, very careful, trying to just blend in, because again, all the different attendants are there. There's a lot of commotion going on. People are arriving last minute. It's a hastily called meeting. Again, there's just all kinds of movement. We can probably envision a kind of a center of the courtyard with a fire there. Maybe he's just kind of warming his hands, trying to be very careful, periodically lifting up a glance, maybe a very furtive glance, a secretive glance, not many trying to, to let anyone really know, just blending in very carefully. Okay, but then it shifts back to what happens on the inside. Let's look together, verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to what? To put him to death. But they couldn't find any. Now, they, they, they had solicited people to come and bear false witness to try to have Jesus, but really they, could, they didn't have anything that could stick. Um, they, they did have somebody, look, we're told here that they had some people come, at least two false witnesses finally came. They look at the end of verse 60. They came forward and they said, you know, with, there is something that he said, and we heard him say it with his own, own mouth. This man made a claim that nobody should be able to make. Remember, they held the temple to be a sacred place, and it was in many ways. And, and, G, and they said, this man, we heard him say that if this temple is destroyed, this temple of God is destroyed, that he could build it in three days. Now, the irony is that Jesus was acknowledging, yes, this, this building will pass. And it, and it would, ultimately, by the way. AD 70, it was leveled by the Romans. All that's left now is a piece of the wall. People see it all the time. You can go to it today, that little piece. But Jesus predicted that before it even happened. 
But he said, but he wasn't speaking about a physical temple. When he was talking about that, he was talking about his own body. You take this temple in three days, I'll raise it. It was a picture of what was going to happen. He was forecasting his own resurrection. Now, he says that, the irony of being, that the very thing that they use as a suggested piece of evidence to have him put to death is the very description that Jesus makes of himself being put to death and rising again three, in three days. Then you go forward, and look what it says here. It says, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? Have you anything to say about these accusations that are being made against you? Are you not going to defend yourself, speak up? You had a lot of, implied, you had a lot of words to say. Now you say nothing, and there is Jesus, bound and saying nothing. The majesty, the silence of that majesty, the majestic silence, the refusal of Christ to play the game, this dummy court set up, it was a fraud, it was just a veneer, it was just designed to give a, uh, some type of a justification for the crime of murder that was in the heart of his accusers, and he knew the whole thing was a, just a, a joke, but it was not funny because it was designed to have him be a dead man. And, and he, he stood there and he said nothing. He gave them no answer. Finally, the high priest is exasperated and he charges him before God. Look what he says. And this time he moves Jesus. Watch. It says the high priest answers, do you have anything to say? Jesus keeps silent. Then the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Once and for all, you need to declare, are you the Christ? Are you the promised one? Do you believe you are the Christ, the Son of God? Say it now, under oath, before God. And Jesus will not deny that oath under God. And he says, it, it is as you say. And nevertheless, I tell you that, and look what he says here. I say to you that hereafter, the next thing you will see in the days ahead will be the Son of Man coming in all of his power, sitting at the right hand of the power, coming in the clouds of heaven. I tell you, Jesus is talking about his ascension. He's talking about the victory over death that's about to happen. He, this he's saying, this whole thing's going down, and you have no idea what's about to happen, and it's going to go down in a way that you cannot perceive it. The power of God is at work. Even right now, I tell you this. It was intense. And then they, you can feel the emotion in the words, because for them that was all they needed to hear. The high priest tears his clothes. He has spoken blasphemy. This man is a liar. He claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And they rip their clothes as a statement. What further? We don't need any more witnesses. He went, you, we're all witnesses. We all heard it with our own ears. This man has claimed to be what he cannot be. He deserves what? Death. And they, it says they all railed in with him. This man is guilty. He deserves death. What do you think? He is deserving of death. And then verse 67, again, Jesus still bound. This one, you, then, he, then they did this. They all spat in his face. And they beat him. And then others struck him with the palms of their hands. And it came in such rapid fire sequence. It was coming from all directions. And again, as he's being beaten, um, they say to him, if you're the son of God and the Messiah, you say you are. Prophesy whose hand is hitting you on the face even now. So we forget that the Jesus that gets led away from the house of Caiaphas is, is, is not Jesus who has been untouched. He, he, listen, he's got blood on his face. He's got bruises. He's been spit all over. Uh, he's a mess. And this is, now, the reason that it means something is because his suffering has begun at this level. But we go back into the courtyard. While that's been going on, 
there's been another trial going on. This one with Peter. Look what happens. It says, then the high priest, after he tears his clothes, we see all this takes place. Finally, they say, tell us who struck you. Then it says this, verse 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and there was a, a servant girl who came up to him. And, and she said to him, hey, hey, you also were with, uh, I, I recognize, you, you, were, you were with Jesus of Galilee, right? Weren't you with Jesus? I th- I kind of it was kind of recognized him, right? And then Peter, Peter, Peter uh, says here, verse seven. But he denied. No, no, I, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know anything about it. I don't know what you're talking about. I have nothing to do this with him, Jesus. And when he had gone out to the gateway, so Jesus, so we see Peter here, look very concerned now. At this point, he 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 gets away from that group. And he goes out to a different place. He just kind of wants to stay out of it. It says when he got away to the gateway, what does it say happens here? There was another girl who saw him. And she said to those who were there, no, I'm telling you, this guy, this, this, he was with, the, he was with, this fellow was with Jesus. And now I'm telling you, he was with them. And look what happens. But again, he denied with an oath. I do not know the man. I swear I do not know him. Thirdly, time passes. Again, this is while the trial's going on inside. Jesus, this is all happening. A little later, those who stood by came up. Now the hours are advancing. Those who came by, they stood up and they came to him and they walked over to him, a group of them, and they said, hey, surely, you know what? We think, look, surely you are one of them. You know, the more we've been thinking about it, your, vo- your speech is not, you listen, because you know why? Peter was a Galilean. He was from the north, there in the south. The, the Judeans and the, and the Southerners had a different dialect accent than the Northerners. G- they go, you're not from here. You are one of them. Your you're language, you're, your voice, we can tell. You're, you are. And then it says here that Peter, Peter, I, I tell you. And it says he, he, now he's where he begins to, what does it say? Curse. And, and then he pulls out his fisherman past, right? He starts swearing. He starts swearing. He starts letting it fly. I'm telling you, I do do not know the man. At that moment, the final word flows out of his mouth. Bang, the rooster. You hear the rooster crow. He probably turns. This is, and at that very moment, and we're not told this in in, in Matthew's account, but Luke adds this one point. It's fascinating because at the very moment, it all happens. This is what we're told. At that moment, Jesus was being led through the hallway. And as he's being led, Peter in the middle of, he, he, he hears the, the cry of the, of the rooster marking the beginning of the day. And then he turns and Jesus at that very moment is passing by. And we're told that it says that at that moment the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now again, and then they, so their eyes connect, at that moment their eyes connect. So again, when we look at Peter's failure, what had it been? You can feel it. Watch it, sit with me on this one. He starts out, it, you can see the progression or the digression, depending, the building momentum, the building pulling away. He first starts out by saying, no, I, I don't really know him. Then, he, then, he, then by the next time around, he says, he's got an, I'm telling you, I, uh, he makes an oath, I swear to you, I don't know the guy. Then by the third time, he's, he's letting it all out. I'm telling you, I'm not. And he starts using the language that would disassociate himself with anything to do with Jesus. And in that moment, the rooster crows. At that moment, he turns, he looks, Jesus sees him, he sees Jesus. And then he remembers. And you can feel the movement so quickly happening, right? It's just happening in rapid fire sequence. Third denial, rooster, Jesus, we look, I remember. It's just that fast. It's that fast. And what was in, many people have said, what was in the eyes of Jesus? 
what were those eyes saying? What were those eyes saying? Because, you know, I speak. Look speaks. I'll tell you one thing they were saying for sure. I told you. I know you better than you know you. But you know what else they were saying? And I love you still. I love you still. Here it is, right there, in the middle of his failure, in the middle of the bottom, with all of his ugliness, the eyes of Jesus. But for Peter, it was too much. This man, this tough man, very powerful man, he can't help it. He doesn't just start crying. The Bible says he didn't just like start kind of sobbing up. We're talking bitter tears. The Bible says it's like, it's like deep, deep, deep weeping, like someone who's wailing out. He runs. Because, see, there was one thing he knew. Remember, Peter thought he knew two things better than Jesus. One, how to fish. And the other thing he thought he knew better than Jesus, which he didn't, by the way. And the other thing that he thought he knew better than Jesus was his personal assessment of his own, of his own capacities. He never questioned Jesus on anything, but when it came to assessing the fact, when Jesus said, look, you're going to deny me. I'm telling you right now, it's going to happen. And I'm not, I'm just, I'm just telling you, Peter, you don't understand what you're walking into. The spiritual forces that are at work here, listen, I'm going to tell you something. On that one occasion, Jesus said to him, I'm telling you right now, you don't understand. Satan, and Jesus uses the word, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. He literally wants to pull you from the inside out and tear you apart. If he has his way, that is what will happen. I'm telling you, he has desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. And when you are restored, which implies you're going to fall, and when you come back around, you remember what I told you, and you strengthen your brothers. <coughs> Powerful. At the time, Peter is just, he is just, many people believe that Peter was on his way to probably doing the same thing Judas did. Judas takes his life after he realizes what he's done. Peter probably was, could have been going that same way, but we know he wasn't alone. John was with him. There were others with him. He, he got help. He, and that's a great lesson, man, in our worst places. To find others. To let them, let them be there. Just being there sometimes can save us from going over the edge on stuff. Um, and you know what we're told here? And again, I, I sit with this. I look at this and I go, wow. For him, it was a devastating blow. It was intense. I mean, he had let down the one he loved. It wasn't because he didn't love Jesus, because he was weak. He was not strong enough. Now, that gets me to where I would like to go. We're going to call this our devotional section. It's designed to get us ready to embrace the Easter season. Let me take this. Let me apply it. Let me work it in. I'm going to talk about how this fits in as we're talking about the context of following Christ. When it comes to following Christ, I want to suggest that we should re remember that it was never intended, number one, to be done at a distance. You know, that, that 58th verse, 58th the bottom of that first column there, you check it out. Look what it says here. It says that Peter followed him where? At a distance. Do you see the danger there? Think about it. I, it's funny. It struck me. It's caught me. It's possible to follow him this way. He was cautious. He was tentative. He didn't really want to commit himself. He started out at a distance. And let me tell you, uh, and I'm going to look at this in two directions. One direction is this. There are some times where some of us, we are following Jesus, but it is at a distance. We really haven't fully committed ourselves. And it shows up a lot of times when we're being when in conversations with people, social circles. That we're, I was thinking about Peter. He was willing, to, listen, in his moment, he was willing to die. He, when he reacted and he didn't think, he was willing to, he did it. He was willing to die. He got physical. He could do that. But, in the, but now that it had settled down, 
and, and things were, he was processing what was happening and things didn't make sense anymore. And, and as he's, all of a sudden now, he's just, the same man who was willing to die and, and be physical is now, is now someone who, uh, a, a, a girl comes up to him and says, I think you're, you're one of them. No, not me. That peer pressure, that fear of what other people are thinking, yeah, maybe the consequences as well. But oftentimes, when we follow at a distance, we, are, we, we want to be careful about identifying ourselves with him. Don't want them to know. And what is he end up ultimately doing? He ends up making it very clear. He uses language that he thinks will disconnect. Nah, nothing to do with him. Nothing to do with him. Nah, 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 he's swearing at him. You see that? This, but I'm gonna take. But yes. But listen, it's also true for those of us who are following Jesus that there is no such thing as prevailing in Christ at a distance. One of the key principles of following Jesus in a successful, growing way has to do with proximity. There is power in proximity. There is danger in distance. It's all about staying close to Christ. We use this language because it represents an intimate relationship. That's why we're constantly reminding everyone who's serious about following the Lord, are you going to spend time in relationship with him? Reading his words, my words are power, they are life. My sheep hear my voice, another they will not follow. It's the integration of our life and our lifestyle with the way of Christ. We are praying, we're talking, we're thinking about our life, we're moving everything through the lens of Christ. Our conversations also are connected at times. We make our life choices, it's connected to our relationship. We're not living disconnected lives. It's an intimate life. The people, some of which that we're associating with, are also following the Lord, so that there is this strengthening that occurs by training together in the way of, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's about something that we incorporate. The point is, and, and again, I'm not talking about separating ourselves, I'm not talking about being better, I'm just talking about the life that prevails is a life that li- is lived close to Jesus. There is a danger of trying to follow him, listen, from afar. There, it, there, there are just we're, just, we're just not strong enough to do this from a distance. It, it, you gotta throw in. And, and there's something about it that you, it doesn't matter if we've been following Jesus for just a little bit of time or for many, many years and we're far down the road or somewhere in the middle. The fact of the matter is there, there, are, there are certain things that will come up in our lives. There are, there are things that, that will happen. There are too many temptations, too many um, uh, stumbling stones, too many, as the old hymn said, dangers, toils, and snares out there that we just, we, we don't, aren't strong enough to do this right on our own. And that leads to the second piece here. Because when it comes to following Jesus, just like Peter finds out, when it, when it comes to following Jesus, inevitably we will come, number two, into situations that will reveal the weakness that is within us. That's just a fact. And oftentimes when the right pr- pressure is applied, we find we are not as strong as we thought we were. Our faith it may, may actually get rocked. There may be times where we have our own personal issues where we're really struggling. We're falling back into patterns of our past. We thought we were free of. We have failed. We have blown it. Maybe, you know, Peter, again, is the, is the classic example of just that, that decline, momentum decline into a, into a place where he completely disavows his, his loyalty to Jesus, even though we know he loves him. And, and that's the thing. And yet, you know, one of the benefits, stay with me on this, of, of failing and confronting our own failure, and I think it's going to show up in the life of Peter, too. I'm, in fact, I'm confident it does. But one of the benefits is that, and I'm not saying we should seek to do it, but oftentimes it's in that place where we struggle, where we fail, or where things 
uh, we're, not, we're, we're getting stuck in places, and, 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 we're, and in our own way, we're, we're denying him. In those, listen, in those places, a lot of times it's where we go, Lord, I'm not as strong as I thought I was. The stuff that's coming out of me right now, that doesn't look like you. I'm not as strong, and then I'm not as strong as I, I thought I was, and then what happens is we tend to get then um, uh, sort of a different perspective of our own self-ability and co- our confidence is maybe no longer an unhealthy self-confidence. Maybe the ground gets cleared of some of the pride that's been clouding it up. And all of a sudden, we're far more open to the idea that, really, I can't do this without Christ at work in my life. I really do need Christ deeply to show up. I need God. And then on top of that, when we really get the sense of how much we need God, all of a sudden we realize, wow, you know how amazing the grace of God is? That he loves me even when I fail. That he loves me even when I've been been willing to, to shame him. He loves me still. His grace. It's all about you, Lord. It's not about me. At the end of the day, it's, through, it's by grace that I've been saved. The relentless love of God that pursues us through everything. Think about it. Even here, what is it? And you know what that does? Just stay with me. It tends to minimize our tendency to be judgmental and pharisaical and mean-spirited. I'm not saying we don't contend for growth or try to keep standards that are clear in the scriptures. I get that. I really do. But there's a graciousness that tends to flow out of our lives because we never forget how much we ourselves need the grace of God to work in our lives. You see what I'm saying? And then that leads me to this understanding that Peter, think about it. Jesus does not turn his back on Peter, does he? I mean, one of the things that's worth noting here is that he never gives up on Peter. Jesus loved him in his weakness. Jesus, listen, refuses to deny Peter even though Peter denies Jesus. And, and I, I, let, me, let me sort of kind of, kind of bring this towards a close by, by referring to a story that I read. Um, this was by one of the old commentators that I read a lot named, named G. Campbell Morgan. And Morgan was talking to one of his commentaries about the eyes of Jesus. And he said, he says he remembered himself uh, sitting in a church and he was in a church and he was listening to an old Anglican pastor talk about, give a sermon on, he called it the eyes of Jesus. And, this, and he said, in this sermon, this old Anglican pre- preacher was talking about how Jesus looked at people and how the eyes of Jesus looked at people, how they gave and, and how he looked at people's hearts and motives. And then he, then, he, then he says, the Anglican preacher, the old Anglican preacher said he got to the point where he says, and never forget, he says, I want to tell you about also Peter and how Jesus looked at Peter and how those eyes that looked at Peter must have broke Peter's heart. And then Morgan says, but that old pastor got, over, got on the pulpit and he leaned over it and he said these words. And he said, Morgan said, I've never forgotten them. He says, but don't ever forget that that look of Jesus, however wonderful, would have been no good if at that moment Simon Peter had not been looking his way. And everything is connected to a willingness to look his way. Peter, impetuous. Peter, braggadocious. Peter, um, oh, the profane, the base, the denier. But underneath it all, the one who loved Jesus and still kept his eyes out for him. And I'm going to tell you something. That's the key. That's our third piece. It sounds so simple. But you know what? When it comes to following Christ, the key will always be just to keep my eyes on Jesus. It's all he did. He, all he did was look his way. And you know what? When he looked, Jesus was looking back at him. And I love that. 
Look to the Lamb of God. He's looking for you, and he's looking for me, and he never stops looking. He sees Peter in his failure, but those eyes, those eyes, Peter was looking his way. What is that telling us? In every weakness and every failure, just as in every victory, may it be so in every defeat, Lord. Let me to look to you. That to look to you. That's all I got to do. I got to look to you. You're my great Savior. You're my Lord. Even when I got nothing, I got nothing to give you. I got nothing. I, I, I pushed you away. But I'm looking your way, and you're looking at me. And that face of Jesus, you think about it, beaten, bloodied, and bruised, with spit all over it, still had a moment to care for his wounded disciple who's hit the bottom. And when they see each other, it's like, I'm with you, even here. In your failure, walk with me. You'll understand. Powerful, powerful. May it remind us that we, we, the whole, whole, this whole goal these next few weeks is to fix our gaze better on Jesus. Let's do it. Let's focus on the one who's looking for us. And remember, at our worst places, and we will have them, all you got to do is look his way. You know, we, we close... We got this really unique song. It's called The Haunting. But the song actually is about Peter. And in many ways, it's about his failure and his struggle, but it's also about us. And so it's a great way to end what, we're about to sh- what we've just shared, and it's a great way to finish. I'm going to pray. We'll have our time of giving. And we got this, this, this pretty good song. It's going to connect right with us. Oh, let me pray. Lord, I thank you for the great privilege of being able to talk about you, but even greater, Lord, to be able to talk about the love of God that has no bounds. And um, Lord, we need your grace. There's no question about it. Your grace pursues us like a gift. And it's on our trail. And, it, and, and things, Lord, things that, that would pull us back to places we don't want to go, things that we're stuck in right now, struggling to get out of, attitudes, hurts, pains of the past, whatever, even the temptation, Lord, to push you aside, help us, whatever we do, Keep our eyes turned towards you. Just look to you. Let's look to you. And that's so much about what this time's about, Lord. It's about just looking to you and to the cross and to the promise of life to come. And, and Lord, I just pray that our understanding of who you are would be enlarged in these coming weeks and that we would have a better sense of how much we really are loved. I mean, really are deeply loved. May we see your eyes in new ways. So I just pray, I pray your blessing over the song it closes like our closing prayer together and over our time of giving which we honor you together with the best of our abilities in Jesus name we pray amen